0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of Exodus chapter 20, we were already there when Jonathan read the Ten Commandments, and we're continuing our little series, little mini-series on Communion Sundays of going through the commandments one at a time, and we are up to the seventh commandment, that is Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It's a very short verse, obviously, but if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. Shorten to the point here, the Word of God this morning, uh, Exodus 20, verse 14. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us today. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have revealed all things needful for us. That you revealed yourself to us. And most of all, in doing so, you revealed the way of salvation through faith in Christ by your grace alone in the scripture. And you revealed your will to us. Uh, In your word, both to show us our sin, to show us our need for Christ, to, as Jonathan said this morning, to restrain sin in us and in society, as well as to show us how we ought to walk as your redeemed people and how how we should live to show our gratitude to you for the grace that you give us in Christ. And so once again, we ask that you would uh, work in us by your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word, make us as your people doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Uh, sanctify your saints and save the lost to glorify the name of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we've been going through the Ten Commandments on the first Sundays of the month for a little while now, and we're getting close to the end of them. We're at the seventh commandment. Um, you know, the, the even in the English translations, if you look at the page there, it's uh, you know four four words in English and Hebrew. I believe it's two words. It's, it's really short. It's almost not even a, a sentence in some ways. It's basically no adultery. It would be a very wooden literal way of putting it. And so you might think by the fact that it's such a short, very brief verse that there wouldn't be a whole lot of, of explaining needed to understand its meaning, its relevance, its, uh, the, uh, the implications of it, the various applications of it. But it's, it's really, uh, if you think about it at all, There's there's so much more to this, and uh, and for that reason, I I won't uh, in any way be able to handle all the different applications of it and implications of it in one or two or even three sermons. We'll probably spend at least one more Sunday uh, next month on this uh, commandment. But uh, there might not be a more needful commandment of the ten for us to spend some time studying and being reminded of in our day than the seventh. You could, I know you could say that about every commandment of God, uh, but I, I believe in, in some ways God's commandment against the sin of adultery uh, is, is the one of many that is needed in some ways uh, more than, than most to be recovered, especially in, in the church. Uh, this commandment against adultery is rooted in God's creation ordinance of marriage and procreation from the very beginning in the very first pages of the book of Genesis and it really does have, you know, the, really the first couple chapters of, of Genesis have a very wide-ranging uh, list of implications and applications for our lives as believers. And this, this commandment kind of points us back to some of those in a lot of ways. If you think about it, in some ways, many of the, the ills of our present society that we are seeing in our day can be traced directly in one way or another to the abandonment and the transgression of God's created order of marriage and family. These things that we kind of just take for granted and don't think much about, Uh, the divorce of sex from marriage and from from marriage to procreation has had devastating effects on our society. Uh, The sexual revolution so-called, if you think about it at all, it's been the bloodiest and costliest revolution in modern times. You know, you think about about some of the things, some of the wicked things that's happened in this world in history. You know, you think of World War II, you think of Nazi Germany and six-plus million Jews and others callously exterminated under Adolf Hitler. You think of the Soviet Union. You think of of Joseph Stalin. And the the numbers vary depending who you read. But I've read upwards of 100 million people murdered... Because of socialism and communism. Many of of Stalin's own people he murdered. Tens of millions of Russians he killed uh, in order to have his communist uh, so-called dream put there in in Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, But the, the sexual revolution has been bloodier than that. It has caused more damage than that, if you think about it. Think about just some of the examples. The Holocaust of abortion not unrelated to this commandment, sixty plus million babies murdered in our nation over the last fifty years, since about 1972 or 73. And why? Why were most of them killed? Fornication, cohabitation, all these things. Uh, the the plague of divorce in our country, uh, leading to fatherless homes. This the some of the figures. ...that they come out with uh, for the number of fatherless homes or the percentage of fatherless homes in our country are staggering. In in some cases, in some demographics, it's as high as 70%. More often than not, there's no father in the home. And if you know, you may know this, you may not. uh, Fatherlessness, having no father in the home, is the number one predictor of crime and incarceration and other forms of harm... Uh, that this plague leaves in its wake, more than anything else. In other words, if you want to predict, not that it's a sure thing, thankfully, if you want to predict the chances of someone becoming a career criminal and spending time in jail, fatherlessness is the number one predictor of it. And you can trace that in many ways back to an ignoring or transgressing of the Seventh Commandment. Homosexuality, the so-called transgender movement, also is a violation of this commandment. Think of all the irreversible damage being done to our children in this country by that cult. In many ways, it can be traced back to a violation, a transgression, an abandonment of this commandment. And so the more you think about it, the more you see this commandment has far-reaching implications and applications that we as God's people should be mindful of and should be thinking about and thinking through as we look at his commandments and his word on this subject, in, in general, the biblical God-ordained view of marriage and family is under constant attack. Sexual immorality and perversion are rampant, to say the least, and that I have to say, even among professing Christians. You probably, I bet, I bet you, if I ask you to raise your hands, I won't. Uh, we're not interactive in our sermons as Presbyterians. We're the frozen chosen. We don't, you know, move around or say things, but. Uh, how many of you, and I'll, I'll just let you think of this on your own, how many of you know professing Christians who are cohabitating right now and think nothing of it? We had neighbors, and I won't say their names uh, a number of years ago, who we loved them. They're just nice, the nicest people you ever want to meet. Cohabitating didn't think a thing of it. I think eventually years down the road they got married, but at the time I, I was a little bit I didn't know what to say. I, thought, I wanted to say, you realize this is not a small thing, what you're doing. They thought nothing of it. It didn't even seem to cross their mind at the time. Our culture is seemingly in the midst of an all-out rebellion against God's law regarding marriage, family, and sexuality in general. Kevin DeYoung writes the following. He says, is there any command more ridiculed in our culture than the seventh commandment? Adultery is a joke. Homosexuality is a right. Sex before marriage is the norm. No fault divorce and remarriage is assumed. Bestiality is increasingly considered avant garde. This is the world that we live in. Sex has always been a leading vote getter in the most popular sin contest. But never before in this country has so much sexual deviance been made to look so normal and God's standards made to look so obscene. And that was written probably over a decade ago. I think it's gotten worse since the publication of that book, sad to say. You know, Sadly, the seventh commandment is also disregarded, redefined, and transgressed among many professing Christians. And that to such a degree that at times there no longer seems to be much of a difference between the church and the unbelieving world around us. This should simply not be so you know 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 Paul says this he says to the believers in Thessalonica he says for this is the will of God that should get our attention right that's what every commandment you read in scripture could have that as the preface here's the will of God for you give the commandment he says here this is the will of God your sanctification in other words God making you more and more holy more like Christ by his grace this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what is it? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That sounds like a big statement. Is it, Why does he say that? Does Paul say that because it's the end all, be all? Is he boiling down, you know, when we read the Ten Commandments, was Paul saying, you know what, you can boil all those down to just the one? No. No. If you were going to boil it down, you'd say what Jesus said in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But Paul is able to say in some ways that the will of God, and in some ways, in some sense, the sum total of our sanctification in some ways is in the abstinence from sexual immorality. Why? Uh, Not because it's the end-all, be-all of the Christian life, but because in the midst of a devout culture, Abstaining from sexual immorality is one of the primary distinguishing marks of a believer. It's one of the main things, it's meant to be one of the main things that sets you and I apart from a dark, unbelieving world. And so when we abandon that, what are we doing? We're not being the salt and light that we're supposed to be, among other things. Now, this was certainly true in Paul's day. Think about the context in which Paul... And the other apostles preached the gospel. Most of the places they went, most of these Gentile nations were pagan lands. In the midst of darkness and idolatry and false religion, that's the context in which they preached the gospel. You know, in our day, even in our day, I I still want to say, this might be naive on my part. Most people in, in America, I think, at least have some awareness. Even if they don't believe in God, they have some idea of, of Christianity and the one true God. Most people, if you walk up to them and talk to them and, and talk to them about God, they don't look at you like you have two heads. They know who, to whom you're referring. In Paul's day, it wasn't that way at all. They worshipped all kinds of, of idols and, and things, and so Paul was rearranging their entire worldview when he brought the gospel, when in a lot of ways our nation is becoming more and more, uh, to borrow Dr. Jones's uh, way of talking, more and more pagan and one of the results of that, one of the evidences of that, is this widespread uh, practice of perversion and sexual immorality in many ways. We're becoming much more pagan. And so Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, is starting to apply more and more in our land as well. That, that this is God's will for our lives, even our sanctification that we abstain from sexual immorality Many in the church today, many church leaders and pastors and theologians seem in some ways bent on seeking to blur or even erase that distinction with the result that the church is more and more conformed to the world and the salt of the world has lost its savor. That should not be so. And so there's, there's a lot about this commandment that we, that we may think is necessary to talk about and to bring it up. We can't cover all the bases Certainly, in even one or two sermons. So we're going to keep it simple this morning. Lord willing, Uh, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to use the uh, the the shorter catechism, the two questions on that commandment, as in some ways our outline uh, for it this morning. But the first thing I thought we should look at um, is is this a topic that should be dealt with in the pulpit? You know, sometimes we might think, oh, this is this is uncomfortable. I remember being at church uh, a number of years ago with a colleague of mine uh, was preaching, and, uh, wh- whom I think highly of, and he would sometimes give warnings from the pulpit and say, oh, you know, this, this one is, uh, you know, use movie ratings, you know, PG or PG-13 and, 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 and things like that, and we're not going to go into PG-13 in any way uh, this morning. But, you know, we have a tendency, I think, many of us, well, meaning uh, that anything that, like this, it might make us a little uncomfortable Uh, we often want to avoid dealing with it, especially in the pulpit. And I think that's a mistake, and I hope to show you why that's a mistake here, uh, briefly here this morning. And I'll just ask this, does does the Bible not address this subject a multitude of times in the Old and New Testaments? How often does this subject come up in the Bible? It comes up constantly. You'd probably have an easier time listing the book's especially of the New Testament, that don't talk about it than the ones that do. And it might be a rather short list, and it might shock you how short that list might be. Do we dare remain silent about a subject that's so commonly addressed in the Scriptures? Are we wiser than God? That's what we're implying when we omit parts of Scripture from preaching. Now, to be sure there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, as it is with most things, that's certainly true with this particular subject in the preaching and teaching of the church. It, it should not be done in an unnecessarily provocative or offensive way. You know, one of the things that seems more, more and more common in our day, even in some reform circles, is people look for shock value. Maybe that's because part of our Internet age. Everybody wants clicks. Everybody wants to get uh, reactions and impressions. We should not treat the preaching of God's word that way. So we should not do these things and address these topics in an unnecessarily uh, offensive or provocative way. It should not be done in such a way that causes our little ones to stumble. Uh, but at the same time, I believe it's something that, that it should be done in such a way that they can hear it. And I'll, I'll ask this. Think about this. How often do the subjects of marriage and sexual morality come up in the epistles of the New Testament? Again, you'd have an easier time listing the ones where it doesn't show up. ...than the ones where it does. And why do I ask that? When Paul or Peter or John, for example, wrote their letters to the churches... Uh, letters, uh, what, ...what happened with those letters or epistles that, we're, that we read in our New Testament? They were read publicly before the gathered church. And when you read the book of Ephesians, for example, it's clear that children were present. Ephesians 6, he says, "...children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right." That letter was read in front of the entire church. And children, little ones, were addressed directly as a result of that in the preaching. That should not be something that we never do. And so the things that Paul wrote in that letter, which also touched on these subjects, would have been read in such a way, not to give offense, but to give instruction for everybody in, in the church. In other words, they were read. these letters were read publicly before the whole congregation, On the Lord's Day, they were often, we assume, taught and explained to the gathered church in that setting. And if that's the case, how often were these subjects brought up in the church? And necessarily so. Remember the context in which these people were converted out of. The paganism, the immorality, the idolatry that they were converted from. It was necessary to teach these things even more in that context. Marriage, husbands and wives, parents and children, faithfulness and adultery, sexual immorality of all kinds, these things are clearly and explicitly addressed in one way or another throughout the New Testament epistles. So much so that it would be actually, again, easier to list the books that don't mention them than the ones that include them. These things were addressed commonly and repeatedly because these things affect the vast majority of believers. Think about this. You know, In most contexts, in most ages, really, even including our own, most people, especially most Christians, will eventually get married. Not all, but there's certainly application with these things because of that. These things involve our real everyday lives in very practical ways. And so the apostles, being the good pastors that they were, did not leave the flock without a sure word of counsel and instruction in matters such as this, matters as important as this one. And so in the church today, I think we must do likewise if we're to be faithful to the word of God. So let's look at this. We're going to use the shorter catechism briefly as our outline in some ways. Uh, as This is going to be an introductory sermon on the subject, so not all bases will be able to be uh, touched on or covered. But we hope to look at this maybe another, su- another Sunday or so in the future. But for the sake of clarity and, sincerity and simplicity, uh, we're going to stick with the outline the shorter catechism gives us in questions 71 and 72. So 71 uh, is what is required in the seventh commandment. And Again, Jonathan touched on this a little bit when he read the Ten Commandments this morning. Um, as always, the commandments uh, have a positive and a negative application. And you might say, well, it says what we're not to do but it also has an implication for what we are uh, to do. And question 71 says, what, what is required in the seventh commandment? What's the basic thing God, God's will is for us here? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity or purity in heart, speech, and behavior. So as always, God's commands include both a positive and a negative aspect. Uh, each commandment, whether it's written as a prohibition or not, has both a a requirement, something required of us, and also something that is forbidden of us, where the requirement is explicitly stated. The opposite sin is forbidden implicitly, and where a sin is expressly forbidden, the opposite duty is then required of us. For example, we've seen this in a a recent Sunday, looking at the Ten Commandments, but just to remind us of it for those who weren't here for it, in Ephesians 4.25, the Apostle demonstrates this for us, the Apostle Paul Ephesians 4, 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you do what? Speak the truth. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. So falsehood and dishonesty is forbidden. And this is part of the ninth commandment, right? We are not to bear false witness against our neighbor. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 16. We'll get to that in a few months, probably. But notice that it's not enough simply to refrain from lying or deception. Paul could have just said, hey, you liars, stop it. But that's not really the point. That's That's half the point, is stopping the lying. He says, no, speak the truth to one another. Elsewhere, he says, we are to speak the truth in love. So being dishonest, not being dishonest isn't the fulfillment. Being honest people is the fulfillment positively of it. And then in Ephesians 4:28, Paul goes further. He says, "Let the thief no longer steal, but he doesn't stop there, does he? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, you know, work hard, doing honest work with his own hands. You know, theft is work. It's not honest work. It's not God honoring work. He's let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so." Here's your quiz. What's the opposite of theft? It's not just not stealing. The opposite of theft is working hard and it doesn't stop there. He could have just said, let the thief no longer steal but let him work to earn his keep. And that's a true statement. But that's not how Paul goes farther than that. He says, let the thief no longer steal but let him work with his hands doing honest labor so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The opposite of theft And the thing that we are required, duty bound to do, is not just not stealing, it's charity. It's having something to share with others when they are in need. And so, what's required positively of us in the seventh commandment? Question 71 says that it is the, here's the basic gist of the commandment the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity. And then it goes, in heart, speech, and behavior. Thought, word, and deed. Now first notice that with all of the commandments uh, we're not only to be concerned with the preservation of our own chastity as important as that is. And that's where it has to start in some ways, right? We are also to be concerned with that of our neighbor as well. That sounds like we're being busybodies. It sounds like we're sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. Like we don't want to know these things, but we, we should be concerned for the well-being of our neighbors. And a, a disregard of their of the purity of their lives is being disregarding of their well being. You know, we we might just kind of uh, they'll get what's coming to them. No, that's bad. Now we can do it in the wrong way. You can show your concern for somebody else's you know sexual impurity or, or purity by being a prideful, arrogant person, by being a judgmental person, by being somebody who's a busybody and sticking your nose in somebody else's business. That's not what the catechism is telling us to do. But we should care for their well-being enough. We should love our neighbor enough to not be okay or not be uh, disregarding how they are living before God. Now, first things first, we must start with ourselves, with our own chastity or purity, before overly concerning ourselves with that of our neighbors. Our own houses must be in order. What does the Bible say? Judgment begins where? with the household of God it starts with us first uh, so, and that involves our, our heart, speech and behavior so if we are, are concerned about our neighbor's chastity or purity uh, if we're not concerned about it then we don't love them and we don't really care for their well-being uh, and think about this we think of the commandments and sometimes we can kind of slip into a, a legalistic way of thinking about them but God's will as expressed in his commandments is about what's best for us. We were, we, you know, we kind of chafe against it at times. Oh, We think our way is better for us at times. But no. God's will in the book of Deuteronomy. When he talks about the commandments. He mentions a few times. That these things were for your good always. When you think of Romans 12. Where Paul says don't be conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does he say in verse 2? That you may test or prove. What is the will of God, and how does he describe the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? God's will, as expressed in his word, even in his commandments, is for our good. It's good, acceptable, and perfect. Sin, on the other hand, the things that are not God's will, leads to nothing but misery and death. That's really how we should be thinking about God's commandments. Now notice the catechism speaks of the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity or purity in heart, speech, and behavior. Again, thought, word, and deed. God's commandments have always reached deeper than just the outward actions. I think sometimes we are guilty of the the mindset of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Remember, Jesus, he comes to Jesus in front of everybody. He doesn't sneak up to him at night when no one's around. He, he runs up in front of everybody, you know, good teacher, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like, you know, where's the hidden camera? This is the greatest uh, opportunity for evangelism in human history. Somebody everybody ever ask you that? Hey, how do I get saved? Have you ever had somebody ask you that? I've had it once and I thought somebody was playing a prank on me. Back in my Navy days, this guy was reading a Matthew Henry commentary at our snack bar in our birthing. And I think I had a Christian t-shirt on. and He said, what does this mean? And I'm looking, he's reading Romans, I'm like, all right, all right, somebody's playing a trick on me here. But it doesn't happen very often. This guy does this, and he says, Oh, you know, what do I gotta do? And Jesus lists a bunch of commandments off for him. Well, you know, you know the commandments. And he gives him a few of them. And what does the guy do? What does he say? All these I have kept from my youth. Been there, done that. No problem, what else you got for me, Jesus? Right. Was that true? No. But did he think it was true? Yes. Why? Probably because he kept them outwardly. He kept them outwardly. But Jesus is like, not so fast. Right. And he says, OK, it was one thing you lack. And then what did he tell him? We would never say this, but Jesus said it. He said, one thing you lack, take all your possessions, sell them, give it all away to the poor. And then come follow me. And what did the guy say? Not that he went away sad because he had great possessions. Now, Jesus is not a socialist. He's not teaching that possessions are bad. What he's teaching is you have to follow Christ. You have to love God and your neighbor more than your stuff. And he was showing that man, guess what? You, you didn't love your neighbor as yourself and you didn't love the Lord. You loved your stuff more than these things. You loved your your treasures on this earth more than treasures in heaven. He was revealing to him he hadn't kept God's law. But God's commandments have always reached deeper than just the surface level. In fact, the the 10th commandment teaches us that very directly, doesn't it? You can make the rest of them kind of confined to the outward action. Not rightly, but you can kind of fool yourself into thinking, well, I haven't murdered somebody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't actually stolen. I haven't gone to court and bore false witness. But what is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. Coveting is an inward action. It's not an outward action at all. It might lead to outward actions, but it's an inward disposition. And so our hearts and thoughts are where our sins find their root. And so we must be mindful of our hearts, not just the outward actions. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, you know. Jesus said, "Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. The, the mouth is an indication of what's in here, right? The, the heart, but but it starts in the heart. Evil speech starts in evil thinking and evil uh, things in the heart, as well as our actions lead from that as well. So we must, as believers, guard our hearts, our words." And again our actions. We need to learn positively to think, speak, and act in such a way that tends toward the preservation of our own purity and that of our neighbors. And where does that start? We looked at this yesterday at the men's breakfast in some ways. It starts with the renewing of our minds, according to God's word. Romans twelve, verses one and two. Well, so what what is forbidden in the second command of the seventh commandment, rather? Shorter Catechism seventy two says the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste, here, here it is again, all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So this commandment, like the rest of the ten, is what I like to very often call, I call these things, there might be a better word for it, but an, an, um, each one is an umbrella category. In other words, each one of those commands in, of the ten includes a lot of things under it as a category. Uh, it's not just one one particular thing um, and what I mean by that is every every commandment represents a particular category of sins or transgressions in, in such a way that there's, there are many different ways to transgress each particular commandment. The seventh commandment, simply put in some ways, according to the negative side of things, forbids sexual immorality of all kinds, not just literal adultery. That's the point. And the commandment also deals with more than just the outward action again. What what does Jesus say about this commandment in particular in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28? Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, and he's quoting our text, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who does what? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, Jesus is not saying, Moses told you this, and I'm going to tell you something different. He's saying, Moses told you this in the Ten Commandments, and here's what it always meant. This this was the intent all along in in that commandment. That was always the point. In other words, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us a proper understanding of the Seventh Commandment as well as the other ones. And in doing so, he makes it clear that this commandment and the other ones forbids not just sinful actions and words, but also sinful thoughts, desires, and even sinful inclinations as well. A person can be outwardly chaste and yet inwardly still be guilty of adultery. And in fact, I think if, if we're honest, we'd have to say we all fall into that category in some way in multiple times in multiple different ways. We shouldn't. When we read the commandments in some ways, all, all ten of them, if we're honest with ourselves, we should be saying, among other things, this is a list and a catalog, a catalog of my own sins, of my own transgressions of God's law in one way, shape, or form. And so it's not just the outward actions that are to be avoided and repented of, but also our immoral words and thoughts and inclinations as well. This commandment against sexual immorality in general is worded in terms of a particular form of sexual sin that, in some ways is the most heinous and serious form of it. And that is the way a lot of the commandments are written. Think about the commandment against false witness. I, I think I said this before. My little pea brain when I read thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, my little pea brain just sort of translates it without thinking into don't lie. Now, it includes don't lie, right? But that's not what it says. It says thou shalt not bear false witness. It's a courtroom figure. Why is the commandment written in that form? How many of you have ever testified in a court trial or given a deposition maybe? I've done that. Most of us probably haven't. You know, how many of you have gone to jury duty and not been selected, thankfully? Multiple times, you know, I'm always like, I'm a pastor, you don't want me, you know. But, um, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I support the military, law enforcement, and, you know, out of here, you know, go home uh, for the day. That shouldn't be the way it is, but that that feels like it's the way it is. Um, But when it says thou shalt not bear false witness, it's written that way among other reasons to show you how serious of a problem and a sin that is. Because if you bear false witness in a court of law, someone could die. If it's a capital case and you testify falsely to so-and-so, murdered so-and-so, at least in some places they could be executed or at least go to jail for the rest of their lives. So it's, it shows how serious it is. And so the seventh commandment could just say, and it wouldn't be wrong to say, thou shalt not commit sexual immorality of any kind. It could just say that, but it doesn't. It means that, but it puts it in, in the form of the most heinous form in some ways of that sin to show us how serious a sin it is. That is the point of it. What makes adultery so serious a sin before God? It's it's so such a sin before God, not just because it's sexual immorality, which it is, and that is a serious thing, but it's also theft. It's, It's a transgression also of the Eighth Commandment. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan, puts it this way, it, that is adultery, it is a thievish sin. It is the highest form of theft. The adulterer steals from his neighbor that which is more than his goods and estate. He steals away his wife from him who is flesh of his flesh. And then above and beyond even that, it's a violation of a covenant before God. It's a violation of the marriage covenant. So it's also the breaking of one's vows before God and bearing false witness before God and man. So it's also a violation of of the ninth commandment. It's also a violation of the tenth commandment. In fact, what does it say in the tenth? I always find it a little strange. It's God's word, so we can't criticize it, but that the order of the things we're not supposed to covet. I always thought, why does the house come first and then the wife? I would think wife, then your possession. No, it's like not your neighbor's house, not your neighbor's... But he says right there, why does it say that? It's almost as if God wanted to make sure that we thought and understood... Here's a lot of the things you typically covet. And he says, we're not. So it's a violation of all these different commandments. You know, it's been said you could probably list all ten as this being a violation of, of all ten. But it's a violation of the covenant of marriage before God. And so you know, there's, there's clearly a great deal of overlap between God's commandments. And in breaking one of them, we often tend to break others, maybe even all of them as well. You think about the damage that particular sin does. We've already listed a few things related to it. You can see why this is written the way it is and why it is so serious. And so I want to look at the importance of marriage, at least briefly this morning. And God's commandment against adultery shows us something, I think, about God's view of the importance of the sanctity of marriage. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 2, there in paradise before the fall of mankind into sin when Adam and Eve. Ate the forbidden fruit in Genesis three. God saw everything that He had made. Remember the, remember the pattern in Genesis 1? God made light and darkness, he saw that it was good. God made this, he saw it was good. Every and then at the very end, he saw everything that he had made, and it was all very good. Before sin, there was nothing wrong in creation. But there was one thing that the Bible says before Genesis three, before the fall. One thing and one thing only, the Bible says, is not good. And God took care of it, didn't he? But there was one thing missing. He said it was not good, Genesis 2.18, not good that man should be alone. We don't handle things by ourselves very, very well, right? It says it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit or suitable for him. Uh, Eve, his wife, was the helper that God made that was suitable for Adam. In Genesis 2.24, we read the following. When God instituted the creation ordinance of marriage, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Or the King James says, leave and cleave. You know, leave doesn't mean you abandon your family, but you stick closer to your wife. That's, that's the way it is meant to be. Genesis 1.28 uh, says this, And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All these these passages put together in the opening chapters of Genesis teach us God's purpose and design for marriage. Leaving and cleaving, being fruitful and multiplying is what God commanded. One of God's primary purposes for marriage is according to Malachi 2:15 is that God's people would raise what? Godly offspring. It's not the only point and not everybody can have kids, but it's it's part of the main it's part of the main purpose for marriage that God has designed by his ordinance. The seventh commandment in a lot of ways is given to us to safeguard all that. That's what God is safeguarding but with the fence so to speak of this, commandment why does God why does God take marriage so seriously and why should we as well? you could say a lot of things we've kind of implied a lot of things already. Uh, any number of things could be said in answer to that question. Uh, you could think about all the societal ills that we see as a result uh, of, of transgressing God's law in this regard. the breakdown of the family uh, by any uh, any honest estimation has taken a, a great toll on our land that we're still seeing increasing today. Uh, But there's another more important answer to that question. All these things are important. But the main thing is that marriage is a picture of the gospel. You know, we we tend to, in the reform circle, sometimes overuse that that idea. Everything is is a gospel this, it's a gospel-centered that. But the Bible gives us much clearer warrant in this particular thing to say that marriage really is a picture of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33. A pretty long passage considering the length of that book. In that passage, Paul has a lot to say about God's design for marriage. And he bases everything he has to say about marriage there in Genesis chapter 2. He points us back to the beginning of God's original institution of marriage. But in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, this is what Paul says. He says something that if you've never read it before... Should kind of make you sit back in your seat and what? Did I read that right? You know, he's giving us all this practical advice for marriage, but for husbands and wives, you know, wives submit to your husbands as, as the church does to Christ. Husbands love your wives as Christ did the church, even laying down his life for the church, and all these things. And in verse twenty, verse thirty-two, he says this. He sums up the whole thing and says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of God's commands are important. No question. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get, well, I like this one, but not that one. but this particular one, God shows explicitly in the New Testament that it's meant to be a picture, a shadow, a portrait of some kind of the gospel, of Christ and His church. James Montgomery Boyce writes the following. He says, When God created marriage, it was not simply that God considered marriage to be a good idea, though it certainly is that. Or even because God thought that it would be a good way to have and rear children. God created marriage to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. You know, it's it's both and. God did say it's not good that man should be alone. So that's one of the reasons He, he made it. But the ultimate thing it's meant to do is to show, uh, illustrate, as Boyce says, the, the relationship between Christ and the church. So simply put, marriage between a husband and a wife is meant to be a picture of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, that is, his redeemed people. That's, that's why God takes marriage and adultery so, so seriously, and no wonder we should do so as well. Now, one thing about that, the fact that it is a picture of Christ in the church, it is a picture of the gospel, you know, we we all sin in many ways. We all have sinned against this commandment, even if not outwardly, but some even have. Uh, One of the things we should always keep in mind when we think about these things is that there is grace and forgiveness and restoration for those who have sinned in this way as well. That The message of the church and the message of the Bible is not just be, be gone. Unless you've met this bar, unless you've, you know, not to transgress this commandment there's no place here for you no the gospel is, is a gospel for sinners there is forgiveness for all these kinds of sins and thankfully there's also cleansing from these things in other words God when he saves you what does he do we talk about these big $10 theological words God justifies you in Christ in other words he forgives all of your sins when you come to Christ by faith forgives all of your sins freely because of Christ's death on the cross but he also sanctifies you, which is also part of the gospel. It's part of the blessing that Christ has, has, uh, has earned for us. And what, what is sanctification? It's the cleansing from that sin. It is, it is that process of God's grace, the, the work of God's ongoing work of God's grace, whereby he sanctifies us, where he makes us more and more die to and repent of our sins, and more and more be conformed to his image, walking in newness of life in the power of the resurrection. Both those things are part of the good news of the gospel of Christ. And both those things are what God, among other things, gives us through the gospel of his son. And so we should rejoice in that as well, that there is forgiveness. We are not rich young rulers here. We are not those who have this pride of we've, we've, we've passed the bar exam. We've gotten further enough on our own. We are all saved, as we're going to see by this table again, by the grace of God and by the death of Christ. So may God preserve and strengthen our marriages and our families so that he might be glorified in us. For those who are still seeking marriage, may God be pleased to bless that desire with a a godly spouse, a godly wife or husband, and to give us godly children that we might raise to his glory. Uh, And uh, however however imperfect our marriages might be, may God make it so that uh, all of our marriages and families are in some way a reflection unto God's glory of Christ and the church. Amen.